Hello and welcome to Intelligence Talks. I'm your host, Anna Ward, Senior Residential Analyst at Knight Frank, and today I'm joined by David Cooper, who's a planning specialist and lawyer best known for his involvement with Arsenal FC's move from Highbury to Holloway, and Knight Frank's co-head of residential development, Justin Gaze. So, welcome guys. Hi. This episode will be discussing the UK government's plan to overhaul the planning system. We'll look at how realistic its plans are, given mounting concerns from residents, environmentalists and backbench Tory MPs alike, and come up with some solutions to address the shortage of homes in this country. So, David, it'd be great to start with you just on your views on the latest planning overhaul and specifically the sort of biggest change to the new zoning system where land will be divided into growth sites where homes are automatically approved and protection sites where developers will face more obstacles. So, yeah, just to kick off, it would be great to get your thoughts on that zoning system and whether you think it will be realistically a good thing for the planning system. As soon as it came out, I was completely sceptical that it was going to work. I'd been involved in two previous commissions looking at the planning system and they both came to various different conclusions, none of which really ever got implemented. The problem with this is it's not got the people behind it. It hasn't got the support. It hasn't got the support of the Tory members, both of the local authorities and the MPs. And I said from the very beginning it was politically not going to work. And of course, Amersham and Chesham is a very, very good example of making the point. I'm also dealing with Horsham, where they're trying to put further development of massive development of 3,000 odd houses there. And there's basically councillor uproar going on. Now, if the Tories want to lose all the blue seats down here, they're going the right way of doing it. Because, unfortunately, it's not politically deliverable. And coming back to the specifics on this, on the question of the zoning, the zoning in itself is going to create as much uncertainty as the previous system. Justin, just to bring you in here... I mean, given, you know, the number of planning changes you've seen during your career, I mean, what what do you make of the, the new zoning system? Do you think that there is an opportunity, if it is made clear, for this to actually increase the supply of land at the moment? Or do you think it's just not realistic, politically speaking? I am sceptical, like David. I think the, the issue is that this is going to push the responsibilities onto the local authorities to, to determine which zone goes into whether it's a growth renewal or a protection zone. But as we know, local authorities are chronically under-resourced. And what we're going to see is we're going to see the planning arguments pushed at the beginning, so at the local plan stage. And if anybody's dealing with local plans at the moment, they will know that they're probably, on average, two or three years behind. Uh, You know, you're going to have a battle because, of course, in those zones for growth, they're going to be all objected to by the residents. And in those protection zones, they're going to be objected to by the landowners and developers who want to see development within those particular areas. So it is going to be inherently political. So I, I think it's going to cause delays rather than any certainty in the planning system. Interesting. And just to give our listeners, Justin, just a bit of an overview of the, of the current market and what house builders are dealing with. I mean, our latest development land index survey showed that planning delays, land shortages, and more recently, supply chain delays are key obstacles at the moment in terms of house builders actually being able to deliver new homes. 
Can you give us a bit of an overview as to sort of how these are impacting house builders' ability currently to build out their land pipelines and just get on with building homes? I mean, there are, there are absolutely very real challenges in physically developing housing at the moment, whether that is material or labour, not to mention costs, which have gone up enormously over the short term. And, and you only have to look at, you know, particularly London, which was reliant on skilled labour quite often from Eastern Europe. And a lot of those people have gone back due to the restrictions put in by Brexit. And so we haven't got the labour force. I, I think we will resolve the supply chain issues. It will take some time. The effects of Brexit are perhaps are not known and perhaps have been disguised a bit by the restrictions of COVID. And, and of, of course, it, this supply issue affects the SMEs far more than it does perhaps the larger volume house builders. But it is a very real concern that they can actually physically deliver housing and of course, that was slowed down last year when when you had the COVID restrictions on building sites, and you couldn't have people physically working close together. So you had a kind of perfect storm where you had good demand, people wanting to move out and have more space, but the developers weren't weren't physically able to construct the housing. And so, David, I mean, just given those issues, Justin's just covered. I mean, I know that you've been involved before on advising various clients on developing new towns, for example, and as I understand it. Your thoughts are very much that, that new towns are potentially a sort of way out of the housing shortage. But just given the kind of constraints that builders are facing, I mean, do you think that, you know, there is much opportunity to kind of develop these new towns currently in the in the current context? Well, yes, I mean, I hope, as Justin said, that these restraints are temporary because if they're permanent, mm. it's going to affect the building of all houses the advantage of new towns, and I rather call them new settlements, basically, mm. is that they can have the modern infrastructure, they can follow a green policy, and in general terms, they're less likely to be politically sensitive than to trying to extend existing communities where the communities themselves and the council, local councils and the MPs simply don't wanted. And I believe that new settlements in the right places probably give you the answer. There is another problem, of course, with the supply, which is the funding. The funding of these sites is very difficult with the banks. There are obviously going to be cash flow problems with the builders as well, particularly the small builders. And so the whole thing cannot be put down to the local authorities being slow with granting planning consents, the builders sitting there with planning consents or developers and not developing. Those are only two parts of what is a very complex problem. And Justin, would you agree with that, just in terms of, you know, obviously Newtown's being one solution to this, but, I mean, what would you see as the sort of key challenges um, with developing them out? I, I've always been in favour of putting infrastructure first and then building once you have in infrastructure in place, rather than putting pressures on existing roads. Again, of course, that's one of the reasons, as David said, that you get objections locally because all those facilities, you know, from yeah. doctor surgeries through to, to capacity on the trains it is affected. So I think you need to put the infrastructure in and build from that. And, and I think probably, you know, Milton Keynes is, is a really good example where really good infrastructure and it's worked incredibly well. So I think you've got to think about that mm. rather than just 
plonking it on a bit of land and thinking, well, we can put the infrastructure in and, and you come up with bus services mm. which are not used, et cetera, et cetera. I think the other point which was floated a number of years ago was actually allowing development on Greenbelt sites that are close to existing infrastructure networks, particularly tube and train stations, and allowing development mm. around those. That would be a sensible approach. And one of the things that often mistaken is actually what does Greenbelt mean? Everybody thinks of a lovely wheat field and an oak tree and beautiful open countryside. But of course, a lot of mm. Greenbelt is not like that at all. And it doesn't necessarily fulfil its original purpose. So I think we've got to look carefully about how we use our Greenbelt. I'm not saying tear it up altogether, but let's be um, sensible about the approach and provide housing where it is uh, sustainable. David, just on, on the Greenbelt, I and mean, I know you've, you've mentioned before that, you know, you're not a sort of big fan of the way it's been designed and, and the rules around it. Is there a chance that these latest planning reforms could get stopped in their tracks? And do you therefore think that releasing at least some Greenbelt land would be a, a sort of more realistic way forward? Well, yes. I mean, my second plank after the new settlements would be the release of the Greenbelt. Justin's absolutely right. A vast majority of the Greenbelt is worth probably preserving in its own right as being of, of great value, but 15, 20% of it is not. That which borders on existing settlements and has existing infrastructure clearly could be developed. There's been a problem with Greenbelt for years and years on end because it was originally brought in in 1947 by Colin Buchanan and the idea was for post-war children to get a bit of fresh air in the countryside. And, of course, it's changed now to be a middle-class, let's keep... I mean, it's almost a ghetto, to be perfectly honest mm. with you. As far as the Greenbelt is concerned, there has to be very special circumstances to mm. release it the local authorities don't want to release it on these very special circumstances, so we're left with the the thing being plonked, if I can put it that way, <laughs> with the planning system and the planning inspectorate. And we had a specific phrase, we planners, which was, the answer's no, what is the question? In other words, you could never get these very special circumstances the recent appeals that are coming out are squeezing out very special circumstances like more affordable housing, more self-build, various different things which never applied before. But it's very uncertain and it's mm. very contentious. So my second plank is that this policy, if it was going to do something, should have grabbed at the green belt. There's no mention of the green belt in these planning reforms. And I mean, do you think that that would be something that the government is likely to look at? I mean, I know that they've um, obviously decided to investigate, well, essentially looking at the land bank in question and going for that instead. It's an easy way out, isn't it? Because mm. once again, the release of the Green Belt is politically difficult. Whether mm. they vote Labour, they vote Conservative, Liberal Democrat, it doesn't matter. Nobody mm. wants it. But do you think that part of the problem, though, is, as, as Justin's pointed out, I think people have this concept of the Greenbelt, you know, being sort of these sort of beautiful rolling fields around them. But obviously there must be at least a, you know, a proportion of the Greenbelt to be used more effectively. Well, indeed. And, and I think it's mm. also worth talking about the measures that are having an effect on housing and not the big, you know, 1,000, 2,000 sites, but 
uh, in terms of housing zones and opportunity areas, they are facilitating development and also permitted development rights, allowing development in town centres, change of use, allowing additional height. Those are having an immediate effect. But, but my concern about these policies is that they are very long term. They would, It will be a long battle, front ended perhaps, in, in order to agree what zone each bit of land lies in. And I, I think another point, and I know, I, I know that everybody doesn't agree on this, but again, it, it's being used as a kind of appeasement is to say that there's this kind of lose, use it or lose it in terms of planning consents, that once you've got a consent, uh, you've, got, you've, you've got to use it within a certain period. And inevitably, there's always a battle between developers saying to local authorities, you're slow in providing applications, and the local authorities saying, we've got, we've got all the, you've got all these applications, you're not developing them. And that is a kind of theme that I've seen for many, many years. So it's not nothing new. But I think it, it is worth you know, remembering what um, the independent housing review that Sir Oliver Letwin carried out in late 2018. And he said that there's absolutely no evidence of house builders land banking. And I think there's a misconception that when a land a house builder has a strategic land portfolio and somebody says, well, you've got 100,000 plots in that, why you can't develop it? It's a strategic land portfolio. It hasn't got planning yet. And house builders tend to deal with the here and now. They want to develop housing quickly. They are, they are judged by their return on capital employed. So they can't have large amounts of cash sitting, not, not producing income. And then therefore, they're not incentivized to hold land. And generally, what happens is if a site hasn't been developed, a large site hasn't been developed, there is some fundamental issue. Does it need infrastructure? Does it need a new junction onto a motorway? Do, does it have the right electricity capacity? Does it have the right drainage? And, and there's something within that consent that makes it unviable to develop. So I think that this is a bit of a red herring that has been used to appease some politicians, but it's actually pretty irrelevant. Yeah, I saw actually um, this week that they're looking at a sunset clause or a sort of use it or lose it rule to sort of get developers to use land, which they have planning permission for. But it sounded also like sort of a lot of it's about optics and how it, how it's perceived by the public as well. And I think I think we're all, all agreed that, that, that one of the big issues is the mm. local authorities' planning departments are chronically under-resourced. They need more resource in order to be able to deal with all these mm. issues. Do you think they'll get it? Because obviously this has come up time and time again, hasn't it? This sort of lack of resource issue and I mean, funding issues. There, there is a methodology where you can effectively sponsor a planning officer. But I, I don't think it's a particularly equitable system because it's basically saying that incredibly well-funded mm. people can afford to have a planning officer that dealing with, with, with their scheme and others can't. Dave, have you got any thoughts just on how um, local authorities could be better resourced going forward to deal with these I, I don't even think it's just a matter of resource. I think it's also a matter of the climate. I mean, when you've got a planning officer who tells you, as recently as one did to me, that 12 of his recommendations, 12 on the trot, have been overturned by the councillors themselves, I mean, would you want to work for an authority where you put in your best shot and 12 times on the trot it's been kicked into touch politically? So it's not just the money. One of the major problems that I've faced is this. Justin has said, quite rightly, that sites should have the infrastructure before they have the housing and the shops and the industry. 
And it's not happening. It's not happening because the Section 106 agreements are not putting the impetus on the developer to provide the station first, to provide the road system first, to provide the bus system first, because all the developers say can't afford it, got to have mm. the housing to give us the cash mm. flow. So you go mm. round in yeah. a vicious yeah. circle. It's a terribly contentious system. I'm yeah, and it's definitely the word on the street, isn't it? I mean, I think in any neighbourhood you, you constantly hear kind of concerns around not enough infrastructure and so on. Thank you both very much for, for joining me to discuss a very complicated set of issues. Thank you again. Thank you very much, Alex. Thank you. For more analysis, you can subscribe to our research note, which goes out every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. You can see our show notes for more details on that. And please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and listen out for our next episode in two weeks. Thank you for listening to this week's Intelligence Talks. <laughs>